G'day six PMers. Just caught me doing a bit of work. Sorry about that. Welcome to our service this evening. You might be wondering why the uh, why the get up. Well, uh, uh, John uh, later on will be speaking from uh, one Peter chapter two, and he's got a lot to say about being godly at work. Uh, but uh, however, before we begin our service proper, uh, let's just hear from the words from Psalm thirty-four. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Amen. It's a great exaltation to be glorifying and praising God in all situations. Uh, let me pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. We give you thanks that even in these times that we can uh, uh, meet together uh, with the wonders of technology. Lord, we just pray that as we uh, come together and, and worship you, even though we're apart, uh, that, uh, and that we hear from your word, we just pray that you would give us hearts and minds uh, willing to listen to you and to apply. Amen. Oh 
Church. My name's Ryle. I'm part of the uh, 6 p.m. congregation. Um, yeah, so to answer the question about how I might um, show my faith or how my faith works within the work environment, um, I guess I'm fortunate enough that I work for a um, Christian organisation. I'm part of um, Mission Australia. So I think that um, presents a really pleasant opportunity or um, a pleasant work environment where um, the Christian faith is sort of more commonly um, acknowledged and, uh, you know, um, underpins a lot of the um, reasons why the organisation was established. So that's a really um, nice thing I find about working in this organisation. It doesn't necessarily translate to um, us talking about our faith all the time or, the, or mean that everyone in the, um, in the workplace um, has a faith. And I think that's um, something that can be really difficult to bring up, um, you know, um, it can be difficult to sort of find those opportunities to share your faith. Um, I would say that, you know, when the opportunities have arisen, um, it's been good to sort of um, share or at least acknowledge, um, you know, that I believe um, in Christ and, and sort of have some brief conversations or allow um, space at least that people can, can know that. Um, and I sort of think um, that, you know, if people want to talk further about that, you know, I'm more than open to um, keep the conversation going as well when it's when it's arisen. But I think for me, largely the way um, my faith works in my workplace is just that it underpins how I engage with people. Um, and also there's the hope that there's more opportunity and the hope that um, when opportunity arises, I can be, um, you know, strong enough and, and encouraged enough to have those conversations with people um, that, you know, helpfully encourages them um, to consider Christ or hopefully encourages them in their own journey with Christ. Thanks. Hi, my name's Luke. I'm a university student currently studying at the University of Wollongong. I've been asked to answer this question. What do I find easy or hard about being a Christian at uni? Because you see, on one hand, having my identity set in God at university is a really hard thing because it's so different to the vast majority of students and people there who define themselves by the things of the world. You feel different and often left out and alone. But on the other hand, 
having my identity set in God at university is such a joy and blessing because it's secure. And finally, proclaiming God's praises at uni is both easy and hard. Because on one hand at uni, I've generally found that most people are really open and happy to talk about Jesus, which is really amazing. But unfortunately, this doesn't mean that I'm not scared. And overcoming my own fears and the negative reactions that you sometimes get makes things really hard. But what university has helped me to see is how plentiful the harvest is for people who need to hear about Jesus. University has helped sharpen my gospel focus to proclaim God's excellencies displayed through Jesus as it's true and urgent for people to hear. Good evening, my name is Patrick and I'll be reading the Bible tonight. The passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Imagine what it would be like if you couldn't pray. As Christians, prayer is at the very center of who we are. We are a praying people. We pray because we're not in control. We pray because God hears us. It's like in the Psalms, when things are going well, we want to give God thanks. When things are not going well or we're facing grief or sorrow, we want to ask for help. To not be able to pray is to not be able to do any of these things. And yet that's exactly what happened to Joshua. Joshua is a young Australian university student who loves Christ and wanted to share that with his friends and those who he came into contact with. And yet Joshua quickly found himself in trouble. In fact, it cost him dearly. I've grown up in a Christian family and I've been raised with Christian values. And I was around about three or so when I first made the decision to follow Jesus. Since then, it's just been a continuous journey of discovering more of who Jesus is. So it all started when I received an email to say that I'd been reported by a few students for student misconduct. And so the instance that had been reported was me just talking to a girl I've been friends with for the past year and a half. And so we were just talking about work and she was saying she was really stressed. I asked if I could pray for her. She said, yeah, yeah. Something that she appreciated afterwards. She said like, look, I don't agree with that. I'm an atheist personally, but thank you. I really appreciate the care. But I was then told that I shouldn't be praying for students on campus and that it's challenging their beliefs and that I shouldn't be doing that. 
I was pretty, pretty annoyed, pretty confused as to why that was a reason. I was like, no way is that a fair reason to suspend me. I had been told that I needed to attend fortnightly counselling sessions to learn how to appropriately interact with my peers. I was also told that if I stepped foot on campus again, that I would be removed by security guards. So I was quite amazed by that, thinking, wow, I've simply spoken to someone and I'm now like a threat to the safety of other students. found out through a friend of the family's through church that she'd received some help in a situation from Australian Christian Lobby. Yeah, right from the start they were very encouraging, very comforting and just reminded me, look like you've been put in the wrong here, you've got God, he'll help you with this, it's worth, worth us fighting it. We received some great help from the lawyers there. They addressed the university, took back the suspension and cleared my record, which was a brilliant result because I may not be doing the current uni course I'm now doing if it wasn't for that. Could have prevented me from getting jobs and all of that, so yeah, I'm very blessed to have had the help. If we didn't have their protection, then a lot of people in universities and other cases would be shut down without being able to come back in that environment and knowing now that I have that sort of assistance available if something like this happens again, gives me that freedom to be able to keep sharing with wisdom, but being able to keep sharing knowing that I have such help there and yeah it definitely definitely makes a difference for me. Hi my name's John Thorpe I'm the minister here at Shell Harbour City Anglican it's great to have you with us and please pray with me as we get into this passage from 1 Peter. Dear Lord we thank you for your word that in it we have everything we need for salvation and life help me to speak to it faithfully now and by your spirit convict each of us of the things we need to hear. Amen. As Christians living in Australia, we get it pretty good in terms of religious tolerance. And certainly, we don't experience the persecution that many Christians experience around the world. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference with a Nigerian pastor, and he was sharing how just that week, one of his congregation members had been kidnapped, and we were praying for his safe return. In northern Kenya, uh, a busload of travellers were pulled over by gunmen. Uh, they were lined up along the side of the bus and everyone who professed to be a Christian was shot and killed. And so our experience in Australia is certainly nothing like those experiences that other Christians have around the world. But at the same time, it's hard not to feel that there is a general mood of negativity around Christians here in Australia. I think part of that has been driven by the same-sex plebiscite a couple of years ago and the polarising of our community around different views of marriage. Uh, more recently, uh, things like Gay Pride Days in workplaces or in schools uh, have made it difficult for Christians. Uh, certainly, if a company wants to have a Gay Pride Day or a heterosexual casual sex day, then that's completely their choice. Uh, but it's difficult for Christians uh, when they're told to not simply be tolerant, uh, of what's happening around them, but that they should actually be advocates for values that are very different to our Christian values. And then, of course, uh, we had Israel Folau and his comments on social media and his subsequent sacking, and more recently, uh, the religious Bill of Rights uh, discussion that's been going on in Parliament. I think all of those things have contributed to a general negativity and a general cultural tension towards Christians. 
And so we're not too surprised when we hear a story like Josh's. Uh, but at the same time, it's remarkable uh, that we've reached this point where there is so much fear around different ideas. And so, you know, Josh's views and opinions are deemed so dangerous and so threatening that they felt they needed to suspend him from university. Uh, the passage we're looking at today is talking specifically about slaves. But I think it has a general principle uh, for us as Christians living in the world for in any situation where we feel we are being oppressed or treated unjustly, and particularly where we're treated unjustly for our faith. And so last week uh, in our passage, Peter set up the principle where he said, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And part of doing good is a willingness to show respect and honour and to seek the good of those around us. So to pick up the language from last week, even though we are slaves of God, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to neglect or subvert our responsibility in society. And Peter uses the word slave to describe our relationship with God because it speaks to our absolute unwavering allegiance. But it also speaks to God's protection of us. And so as a Christian and as an Australian, I'm a Christian first and an Australian second. But as a Christian, I'm called to be the absolute best citizen I can possibly be. And not only for my sake, but so that others might see my behaviour and honour God. And so last week it was all about how we live in society. Uh, this week we're sort of narrowing that down uh, to how we live uh, within a servant-master relationship. And so our passage says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. The word Peter uses here is literally household servant. So it's a different word to what he used earlier to describe our allegiance to God. But conceptually, they mean the same thing. Uh, in our context, we're not slaves. But there are certainly plenty of situations where we place ourselves under the authority of another person. So if you're a student, you place yourself under the authority of your teachers. If you're a worker, you place yourself under the authority of your company and your boss. If you join the local footy club or the surf club or the United Cross-Stitch Association of Australia, then you submit yourself to whatever leadership structures they've put in place. And so certainly on a principle level, we can still take a passage like this and apply it to our circumstances. But as we read it, it also raises all sorts of questions for us, doesn't it, about why it seems to accept slavery as simply a normal part of society. Because unlike God, when we enslave people, we take away their dignity and their humanity. We take away their equality as equal human beings. So we don't just treat them as second-class citizens, but their lives become less valuable. We know from various historical sources that slaves could live a life of relative security and dignity. Uh, they were paid, they were provided with food and a home and protection. They could achieve success in society as a cook and a teacher or perhaps a business manager. Uh, they could earn their freedom uh, or buy their freedom. 
So slavery provided social and economic stability for masters, but it also provided security for slaves. And certainly in the Old Testament, uh, slaves are provided for and have rights and protections. But a slave was still a slave. And so if you had a good master uh, who was considerate and looked after your well-being, well, that's fantastic. But if you have a terrible master who, who's harsh and unfair, then life could be horrific. And of course, there was no legal recourse uh, if you were treated unfairly. Uh, you couldn't run away and staging a coup uh, tended to end badly. And so in this passage, Peter is talking about uh, Christians who are living with harsh masters. Uh, but as we read this passage, it does make you wonder, you know, why doesn't he speak up against slavery generally? In fact, Jesus, Paul, John, uh, the writer of Hebrews, none of them speak against the institution of slavery. And certainly for critics of Christianity, they would look at that silence as just one example of why the teachings of Jesus aren't as good or as revolutionary as Christians claim. And so I think there's a few things to consider in response. Firstly, the Old and the New Testament both affirm the equal value of all people. So male, female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, we are all created in the image of God and we are all equal. And Christ died for everyone. And so that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus is co-heirs to the family fortune and we look forward to the new creation. And so that really was revolutionary. Secondly, the Old Testament law did provide for slavery, but it was primarily about looking after the needs of the slave. And so slaves had dignity, or were given dignity, and they had rights. And so if a master punched a slave and they lost a tooth, then that slave was to be set free as compensation. A slave was to be given a day of rest. They were to share in the Sabbath in the same way as the rest of the household. And if a slave ran away from their master, then they weren't to be returned and they could settle in the place and the community in which they now live. And if a Jew sold themselves into slavery, then they had to be freed after six years and then compensated so they could then go out into the world and succeed. The third thing is everyone expected the promised Messiah to come and completely upturn the social structures of society and to introduce a new era of prosperity. And instead, Jesus comes and he calls people into a new kingdom. So Jesus is quoted as saying in Luke's account of events, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus was a huge disappointment to those who were expecting a more militant Messiah. But I think even today, um, people are disappointed that Jesus didn't pursue a more radical social agenda. Uh, but rather than trying to change existing Roman social structures, Jesus calls people into a new kingdom. He saves people into a new structure. And then he calls people to honour God in the present and to honour those within society. And as they do that, they point people to the glory of God. Which is why Paul can write these words in his letter to Timothy. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and as devoted to the welfare of their slaves. 
So Christian slaves and masters both have a responsibility to honour God in their circumstances. And at the same time, they need to recognise that their identity and their significance and their security isn't in their role in society, but in Christ. Uh, but that's easier said when you've got a slave and a master who are mutually committed to the good of the other. But in the context of this passage, Peter is talking to slaves who have harsh masters. And so we can assume from uh, the way he describes these masters that they're not Christians. And in fact, he parallels them to those who persecuted and crucified Jesus. And so in verse 19, we get to the heart of what Peter wants to say to these Christians who are also slaves. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So Peter condemns the behaviour of these masters. It's harsh and abusive and unjust. But he also wants to be clear that not all suffering is the result of injustice. So verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Of course, it's never acceptable to beat someone, but a slave doesn't deserve any credit before God for suffering as a result of their own bad behaviour. Now, if we get disciplined or fired or a detention for simply doing the wrong thing, then we can't turn around and blame someone else and claim that it's some sort of personal vendetta or religious discrimination. If you're a student and you don't hand your assignment in on time, then you can't say, you know, the teacher doesn't like me or they don't like me because I'm a Christian. You simply haven't done what you were supposed to do. And so you suffer the consequences. So not all suffering is commendable. And certainly some suffering is thoroughly deserved. But if they do suffer for doing good and endure it, despite being treated harshly, then that is something that is genuinely praiseworthy. And so Peter is commending the slave who says, you know, my master Jesus has told me to submit to my earthly master and to honour him. And so I'm going to be the best slave I can possibly be. And if my master yells and screams at me, even if I haven't done the wrong thing, I'm going to continue to honour him. And so people will see that I'm different and they'll see that I do it because I'm a Christian. Even for a slave, submission is a choice because it speaks to our motivation. So if we do something begrudgingly uh, or if we're forced to do it, well, that's just compliance. But if we choose to do something willingly and for the sake of the good of the other, well, that's submission. And certainly that willingness comes out in our demeanour and the quality of our work. We don't just want to do the bare minimum to satisfy the requirement. We want to exceed expectations. We want to take pride in our work. And even though we don't necessarily have positional power in our workplace or as a student, we certainly have relational power. And so we have the opportunity to support those in authority. And that comes out in the way we respect them, in the way that we talk about them, in the way that we participate in the classroom. And when we do those things motivated by a desire to honour God, then that's commendable. And it's even more commendable and noticeable when we do it to someone who is a poor leader, uh, someone who is harsh and unfair, uh, or perhaps even someone who belittles us uh, for our faith. And when we're faithful to God in those moments, when we honour them in those moments, well, that really stands out as something profoundly different. And our example 
is that of Christ. So verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then Peter goes on to explain why. So from verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's significant because Peter wants to say to these slaves that we submit to those who have authority, not simply because you have no power and no control. You know, Jesus had power. He could have chosen not to suffer. Uh, but instead, he chooses to endure the suffering for the sake of honouring his father. And justice will come, but he leaves justice to his father's timing. And in fact, Jesus will die on the cross and pay the price for the very people who are inflicting the suffering on him. And so verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So his suffering achieves our salvation. And in verse 25, he says something very similar, but in language that's a little more personal. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The image of a sheep going astray and a shepherd is incredibly comforting. And certainly every kid can relate to that feeling of being lost. You know, we've all got a story that goes something like this. You know, we're at a department store with mum and she's walking through the ladies' clothing section. And we're kind of bored and making up our own little games using, you know, the clothing racks and the tiles on the floor. And then we look up and we see, you know, the holy grail of Lego sets, the Lego castle. And so we look at mum and we look at the Lego set and you think, oh, well, I'll go and have a look just for a moment. And so we run over and we're having a look and we're looking at the minifigures and the drawbridge and the turrets. And, you know, we're just standing there in awe of this magical Lego box. And of course, we become so absorbed with our magical Lego box that we then look up and realise that mum's gone. And so we try to retrace our steps and we go you know, back to the lady's you know, coats, but we're not quite sure if we turned you know, left or right. And then we end up in the ladies' bra section and that's when you know that you've really gone wrong. And so that panic just wells up inside until it sort of come, becomes an overwhelming sobbing you know, and hysterics. And then there's that moment you know, when mum comes around the corner and you realise that you know, you've just been saved from imminent death, and now life is all good again. You know, in real life, uh, that can look like a whole bunch of different life choices. Yeah, where we make decisions and where sin looks good and fun and free. And then we end up in a place that we just never expected to be and we feel completely lost. So if the sheep is the one that is getting lost and the shepherd is the one that comes and finds and saves and protects and guides. And for someone reading this letter, then the language of shepherd would also remind them of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is what we have in Christ. It's not a suffering-free life, but we have a shepherd who is in control. 
uh, who is protecting us, who has saved us from the consequences of our sin. And whatever suffering does come, we know that we have God with us, comforting us and walking with us through it. So Jesus was willing to suffer for our sake and for the sake of our salvation. And as we follow Jesus, we are called to endure the same suffering with the hope that our example uh, and our desire to honour God uh, will lead to their salvation. And we do that for those people who we like, uh, for those people who we find lovable, uh, but equally for those people who really don't like us and who treat us harshly and perhaps who even persecute us for our faith. So what does this look like in real life? We live in a culture where we have rights and protections. Uh, so when should we endure suffering for the sake of the gospel? And when should we uh, seek protection uh, and make a complaint? You know, not just for our sake, but also for the sake of others. You know, there is a biblical place for lawsuits. Uh, to protect people from injustice. And so, just as one example, we read in Exodus 23. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. For us, we have HR departments and things like Fair Work Australia who mediate on our behalf if we feel vilified or harassed or bullied. But can I suggest those things should be a last resort rather than a first? If you have a boss or a teacher who's negative towards you because you're a Christian, then the best response is to be a better worker or a better student. If they give you menial tasks as a way of pushing your buttons, then push back by doing a better job than anyone ever would have expected and then asking, you know, what can I do next? And I think we need to be slow to complain when people say something offensive because people are always going to say things that are offensive. And we need to be careful when we use labels like bully because simply disagreeing is not the same as bullying, even if it's said in a way that we find hurtful. And if we do need to say something, then start by approaching the person and talk to them and see if you can work out a solution before running off to your boss or to the HR department. Because you may well be able to uphold your rights but in doing so, you might end up hardening them to the gospel. And so are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of someone else? Yeah, our culture seems to thrive at the moment on being outraged and offended by pretty much everything. And so as Christians, we need to be careful not to join in that culture. And we need to be careful with our words uh, that we try to say things in a way that avoid offence. Uh, but equally, we need to be willing to be a little bit patient, a little bit tolerant when people offend us and to be willing to stand up and still love people even though they might dislike us. And our hope is that as we seek to honour God and as we love them, that we might commend the gospel to them, that they might actually see Christ in us. Jesus suffered unjustly so that we might be saved. And so we are called in this passage to endure that same injustice, to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. And that means going beyond what is reasonable and fair and being willing to show the same grace that God has shown us. And so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to give up our rights 
and perhaps sometimes our pride for the sake of the gospel so that others might be saved. Amen. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Emily. And tonight we'll be leading you in prayer. Lord, you are our God. We will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. Beautiful, unique sunrises and sunsets. The sound of birds chatting away, colour bursting flowers. We give thanks to you, Lord, with all our heart. We will tell of your wonderful deeds. Father, despite knowing your goodness, we continually sin against you in thought, word and deed. We have no excuse for doing what we should not do and not doing what we should. We are so sorry. Please forgive us, cleanse our hearts and help us to be more godly in all our thoughts, words and deeds. Thank you for your never-ending mercy, for the grace that we don't deserve, yet you pour on us. God, thank you that you are always with us when we are suffering and in good times. Help us to, t to continue to do good, even when it isn't easy or when we are pressured to follow the ways of this world. Thank you for sending Jesus as the perfect example of what following you looks like. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and please help us to rely and depend on your strength and not our own. Lord, we thank you for those who leave the comfort of Australia and follow your calling to another country to serve you and your kingdom. This week, we specifically pray for Mal and Carissa, Aidan, Sasha and Toby Forrest in Amman, Jordan. We pray that you will be blessing their commitment to serving overseas and their ministry that they faithfully complete. Guide them as they balance their time spent doing ministry and with family and friends. We also bring before you members from our church. This week we pray for John, Sarah, Annabelle and Matthew Thorpe, Elva Tiang, Lois Tibbetts, Yvette, Max, Freya and Oscar Tor. Help them to feel your presence as they navigate this unusual time. Give them the discipline to be spending time in your word as life starts to get busier again. Keep revealing yourself to them so that their relationship with you will continue to grow and deepen. Thank you, Father, that though there is pressure to modify our teaching of your word, that there are still churches proclaiming your word truthfully and faithfully. Give the leaders of these churches the courage to stand up and defend their teaching, that they will not waver in their certainty of preaching your word to the full extent of its truth. 
You are a God who listens to his people, and we thank you for your living word and our direct access to you. Amen. Amen. So we've heard from Peter about being godly at work. For those of you who know me, this is not my usual get-up for work. I normally stand at a computer and type away all day. However, from Peter, we've heard a great example from Jesus of how to be godly in all situations. Now, your work situation might be uni or school, but I want to leave us with this challenge. And that challenge is, how do we be more godly at work, at school, at uni, or at home? How about we talk about that amongst us ourselves after we've finished church tonight? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love. We give you thanks again for the words from Peter, for the encouragement. We give you thanks for the challenge to be godly, to be setting an example like Christ in all situations. Help us, Lord. Give us the strength and courage to be a godly, Christ-like example, even when it's tough. Amen.